Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop event podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On Tuesday, March 19, 2019, Kevin Young read from his book, Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and later joined journalist Tina Griego for an in-depth conversation about the intersection of fact, fiction, and art as part of Inside the Writer's Studio, one of Denver's signature reading series, bringing rising and nationally recognized authors to town for discussions, readings, book signings, and workshops. Kevin Young is the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and is the poetry editor at The New Yorker. He has authored, edited, and curated multiple books of poetry, essays, and nonfiction. Young is an American Academy of Arts and Sciences inductee and a winner of a Stegner Fellowship in Poetry at Stanford University, a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, and a McDowell Colony Fellowship, among others. Hey, everybody. Hey, hi. Welcome to Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design. I'm Gretchen Schaefer, and I'm the director of REMCAD's Visiting Artist, Scholar, and Designer program. The VASD program, as we refer to it, values passionate curiosity and explores critical, diverse, and creative inquiry with leading national and international makers and thinkers. We're very proud to further enrich the academic experience for our students here at the college and to serve the greater Denver metro community. We are so thrilled to be partnering with our friends at Lighthouse Writers Workshop for tonight's event, which is part of their Writer's Studio, one of Denver's signature reading series. As many of you already know, Lighthouse is the largest literary arts center in the Rocky Mountain West. For more than 20 years, they've provided quality instruction, community events, and artistic support for writers and readers at all levels, ages, and backgrounds. This evening's event is also the final presentation in the VASD program's year-long fiction series, which has investigated the complicated relationship between contemporary artists and veracity. In broad swaths of contemporary life and culture, notions of shared objective truths are being challenged and blurred in new ways. In the context of art, illusions are often permitted, they're even expected and desired, and often wield the hoax as an instrument for truth. This series then explores what does it mean to create and revel in imagined and simulated worlds, uncanny characters, and magical actions at a time when the slippage between truth and fiction muddles our modern lives. For tonight's fiction series event, Kevin Young will begin with a reading from his recent and award-winning book, Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News. Then, Tina Griego will join Kevin in conversation to dig into the richness and timeliness of that tome, exploring the intersection of fact, fiction, race, art, and culture. We'll leave time for a few questions from you all, and then Kevin will be available for a short book signing in the East Gallery. But first, a little bit about our speakers. Tina Griego is a journalist and has been a staff writer for the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Rocky Mountain News, the Denver Post, and the Albuquerque Tribune, and is currently managing editor of the Colorado Independent, a nonprofit newsroom based in Denver. Her coverage of Indian country, immigration, and education have won national and statewide recognition. 
You should also know that Tina herself has been caught up in a hoax when an online article peddling false and racist immigration data was, and sometimes still is, incorrectly credited to her. <laughs> Luckily for all of us, hold on everybody, it's gonna be okay. So luckily for all of us, we have the preeminent hoax scholar and expert here tonight to help us sort through this misattribution and much more. Nebraska-born, Kansas-raised Kevin Young is an author, poet, historian, and cultural connoisseur, a music-loving comic nerd with an understated sense of humor who also enjoys reality TV. This gentleman of superb taste is the poetry editor of The New Yorker and the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. His 11 award-winning books of poetry including, include Blue Laws, Selected in Uncollected Poems, 1995 to 2015, Jelly Roll, A Blues, Book of Hours, and his most recent, Brown. If you've had the opportunity to read Bunk, it might not surprise you that Kevin invested six years into crafting this nonfiction epic, which is a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Penn Jean Stein Book Award. Bunk was named a New York Times Notable Book, a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice Selection, and a Best Book of 2017 by NPR, the Los Angeles Times, Smithsonian, Vogue, The Atlantic, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Dallas Morning News, and, well, pretty much everyone. His previous nonfiction book, The Great Album on the Blackness of Blackness, won an Penn Open Book Award. Kevin is an American Academy of Arts and Sciences inductee and winner of multiple distinguished fellowships, including the Stegner Fellowship in Poetry at Stanford University, a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, and the McDowell Colony Fellowship, among others. I really cannot think of a better way to conclude our fiction series than with this master of history and language. We are so honored to host this vitally important conversation with Kevin and Tina at a time when we're revisiting our assumptions of events, works of art, and their makers with wide and waking eyes, and perhaps doing the most truthful thing of all, honestly and boldly confronting our own desires, biases, and beliefs in all of their glory and horror. It is my great pleasure to welcome Tina Griego and Kevin Young. How's everyone? Good. I'm gonna take this off. I want to wear a little leather so you to match you. <laughs> How's it going? Good. I'm really delighted to be here. Um, I'm gonna read first, and then we're gonna have a conversation, and hopefully have a conversation with you all. Uh, I'm gonna start with a bit of bunk. The book, I mean. Um, <laughs> and I thought I'd read the first paragraph. And then give you really an overview of the kind of history of the hoax that I trace in Bunk. So this is the first paragraph of the book. What the American public always wants is a tragedy with a happy ending. If William Dean Howells was instinctively right when he said this to his fellow novelist Edith Wharton, then the hook of the modern hoax has been to separate the tragedy from that American happy ending. 
Recently, the hoax, at least after the 19th century, when War that Wharton and Howells had just seen turn, pretends that every tragedy is far worse than it really is. I end up calling it worser in the book. Um, <laughs> if only to make the scripted ending, no matter how apocalyptic it may be, all the happier. Once, the hoax meant to honor. Now, it embraces horror. Once, it sought to praise. Today, the hoax mostly traffics in pain. So I want to think about that with you today. Um, and really, I talk a little bit just quickly about how I started the book. Really, there were three main questions. Uh, one was, I was interested in whether hoaxes were different now. Are there more of them? Uh, are they somehow qualitatively different? Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you the answers. Uh, has the hoax gotten worse recently? What do you guys think? Yes, I think so. And lastly, is there something especially American about the hoax? Which is to say, is there something that in America we're attracted to hoaxes big and large? Con men, grifters, uh, you know, lies about, I don't know, elections. Um, <laughs> so uh, a little bit of a quick, quick history. This is the Fiji mermaid. And the book starts with P.T. Barnum and comes up to the present. And I was really interested in the Fiji mermaid. Uh, Toby's nodding his head here. Because uh, this is what was, you were told the Fiji mermaid looked like. This was 1842. Uh, and, then when you, and this was one of Barnum's uh, key exhibitions. And then when you walked in, you'd see something like this. <laughs> and what Barnum said, and I think he was right, is he was interested in humbug. And humbug did, wasn't the fakery, wasn't the difference between this and that. It's whether or not you were entertained in that sort of gap. And whether you left sort of pleased, if a little bit surprised. And what I say in the book is that what happened is you often, as an audience member, experienced uh, a feeling of, well, how could I have been so foolish to have thought there were mermaids? Um, and that kind of feeling was one that Barnum started to capitalize on. His first big hoax was in 1835. Uh, this is uh, another hoax from that year, 1835, which is the moon hoax, which is a very famous hoax in a newspaper called the New York Sun. And uh, this is a depiction in an Italian uh, edition a couple years later of what the moon hoax would have been like. The moon hoax was um, an idea that an actual astronomer Herschel was described in the newspaper every day as having these revelations about the moon, and they ended with these flying bat people, um, which I think are really amazing. Um, and people were really struck by them. Some people wanted to send Bibles to the moon. Um, but what I was interested in is what were these hoaxes really about in 1835? This is another hoaxer from 1835, written about, uh, <coughs> his name was Matthias. And he had a kind of cult in upstate New York where there were a number of uh, such religious fervors in the burned-over district. Uh, and what's interesting about this is the woman we now know as Sojourner Truth was involved with this group um, and followed them because he promised Matthias uh, equality, among other things. So but what ho helped the hoaxes along? Like, why were there so many? And one of the big things was new media. So. Uh, there was the advent of what's called the penny press. Papers used to be a nickel. Suddenly the paper was a penny. It was more like a giant broadsheet. 
uh, and people would read it. And the idea of it was that it would be nearly free for everyone. It would uh, get rid of class differences. You could acquire it anywhere. Uh, it starts to sound a lot like the internet after a while. And, and so the way that the promise of it uh, is that it would be democratic in a way. And that's also the promise that P.T. Barnum offered. He said that you too could be an expert. Come see if this is true. See if this is really a mermaid. Um, and I think that's really important because that democratic uh, supposition was quickly violated and quickly these papers as well as the internet have been filled up with hoaxes. There's also a kind of uh, societal change that was happening. Uh, 1835 uh, is an interesting time because it's really the advent of blackface minstrelsy, which unfortunately is back. Um, I never thought when I was writing about blackface in 1835 that I'd be like, well, the current blackface trend. Um, <clears throat> but then there's also the rise of pseudoscience and fake expertise. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, so I won't go into it too much here. But one of the main things that made all these hoaxes connect was race. So I'll just show you a, a few other slides. This is Joyce Heth, which was Barnum's first big uh, hoax, 1835. Um, you can see her depicted there. She has long nails. She was uh, a figure that he claimed was George Washington's nursemaid, which would have made her uh, 100 and 50, 61, 161 years old. Um, she was not. Uh, I'm giving you the answers, remember. So, um, But people came from far and wide to see her, to touch the woman who touched and probably nursed, he, he hinted at different things at different places, uh, the father of our nation. And why is that? What was the appeal there? And I think one of the appeals was the kind of nostalgia that I mentioned in the previous slide. There was a kind of desire to return, but there was also, we were a newborn nation in a way. And here was this connection to Washington who was just then becoming kind of a cult figure, um, who of course, as you know, was said to never have told a lie. I cannot tell a lie, I should say. Uh, Barnum is quite the opposite. Um, uh, and perhaps another founding father of ours. So um, Joyce Heth was displayed for about a year and a half. Um, she died probably of exposure. Um, and then uh, Barnum took her body back and had her uh, dissected in a medical theater uh, and charged admission. Um, and he probably owned her as a slave. We don't totally know. And Barnum would play both sides of that. He would say, you know, of course I, you know, had her. <laughs> and then he would say, oh, I, he would go to Providence, which was a, uh, fairly abolitionist state, and he would say, oh, you know, she's displaying the freedoms of our country. So all of these questions were circling from the very start. This is another example of his, uh, of a later hoax from 1860 called What Is It? And um, this was one of, it's the cover of the book is one of the figures, What Is It? is on the right. Uh, and he was a person that Barnum claimed was the missing link in evolution. And if we think of it, it's 1859 when Darwin comes out. And so just a few months later, Barnum is already using Barnum's, I mean, sorry, Darwin's language against it to, uh, to suggest sort of the opposite of evolution. And I talk about it at length in the book um, because what I came to understand is a few things. I'm going to skip ahead, I'm sorry. This is another... Uh, 
these are posters from his American Museum. They're beautiful, long broadsheets at Harvard. Um, but you see here, it says, what is it? Uh, and I, well, that was one of my big discoveries. I'm a poet, so I love little language things. Um, so the idea that it wasn't what is it, is what is it? So this, this person was literally turned into an it. This is a picture, a depiction from the 1860s of uh, what is it. As you can see over here, it says the original what is it. Uh, and then it says the life of Zip. He was also known as Zip. And there's a picture of him probably like you would have seen him if you came in. But this is what he actually looked like sort of in repose. And I, I was doing research and I came to see him. Uh, say, see this in a box at the back of the archive. I love archives, uh, not just because I run one at, at the Schomburg Center, but because they tell us something different. And all the stories I'd heard was you know, about Barnum's exploitation of this person who might have had microencephaly. And when you look at this picture, it seems like actually it was just his haircut that changed <laughs> how people perceived him. And so why would we believe actually this faker about the faking? But we kind of did, even if we were protesting it. And so I came to understand the ways that uh, what is it, Zip, was a really interesting, complicated performer. He was a performer. And I want to read you just a little bit about him, and then we'll jump to today. As a pioneer of that exhibit, the sideshow folk termed Pinhead, Johnson did have a lengthy and successful career continuing well into the 20th century. Remember, he started in 1860, when he often appears more clown-like. By his death in 1926, Johnson was called, quote, the Dean of Freaks, enjoying what critic Robert Bogdan calls the longest successful career of any of the sideshow attractions. Johnson's reported last words to his sister indicate how he was well aware of his role. Well, we fooled him for a long time, didn't we? Ultimately, Zip was estimated to have been viewed by over 100 million people. I want to say that again, 100 million people. And his pop culture descendants could be found in popular comics, such as namesake Zippy the Pinhead, and comedy routines like Saturday Night Live's Coneheads, who hail from faraway France. In 1885, some people remember, an 1885 <laughs> photograph uh, by Eisenman, a studio that regularly captured circus folks, depicts old Zip Barnum's What Is It, again, the is is lowercase, um, alongside Ashbury Ben, the leopard boy, age 17 years. The image remains especially powerful in its difference from the nondescript degradations from just a quarter century before. Johnson looks almost regal, furry suit notwithstanding, zip across his waist like a prize belt. The pair defiantly eyes the camera, boxing gloves on as in the promotional photos of Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat posed as pugilists for their groundbreaking collaboration show a century later. Ben even has Basquiat's early blonde mohawk haircut. You see that? <laughs> <clears throat> the image is literally re reversed. Zip appears backward on his belt. But if you look closely, Johnson has an image of George Washington pinned to his chest as if it were a war medal. The photograph offers a reversal of Heth's fate, Johnson literally attaching himself to the father of our nation to offer himself up as his own foundational figure. So that's a little bit about him.
So what interests me is the way that the modern hoax changed. Um, as I say, it sort of used to be about praise because whether it was Joyce Heth or even what is it, there was a kind of curiosity factor. And Barnum was really great at saying, as I said, you could be an expert. You decide, is this the missing link? Is this woman uh, really the nursemaid to George Washington? And I, I think that <laughs> those qualities were ones that ultimately were about praise. And by the end, that went away. And what happened, really? And I'm going to read a little bit of that and then read the ending. So one of the things I was interested in is the way that the hoax, uh, in its thinking about race, um, has to adopt questions of fakery. So I talk in the book at length about a lot of fake Indians, uh, of which there are many. And, <clears throat> and then I think a lot about someone who I hoped I'd never have to write about, which is Rachel Dolezal, if you know who that is. <laughs> um, and I ended up having to write about her because she thinks, I th think, because of two things. One is that she, of course, pretended to be black. Uh, and so, uh, so far as she also was the head of the NAACP in Washington um, state. Um, and then also that she, her fakery was discovered about a week before the Charleston killings. And so I ended up writing about the ways that the Charleston killings and this mistake, or mistakes about blackness and, and misperceptions of race. Uh, one is sort of positive that I would like to be that, and one was negative that I'd like to destroy that. And those two connections have a long history, as you can see, all the way back to what is it. And so I wanted to understand how do we get from here to there. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But then I, something happened. I was finishing the book, and I said, look, we've got to finish this book because they're kept keeping more hoaxes. But at the same time, I started thinking, I was, I, part of me was like, will anyone ever care about fakery in American life? Um, and then suddenly there was an election, um, and the term fake news became pretty de rigueur. So I thought I'd read you just the end of the book. So I've read you the beginning, and I want to read uh, quickly the end. And they'll jump around, take about five minutes. Once I thought I would include in this book a hoax of mine own, I had a fake name picked out in everything, a bit of prank or Easter egg in a, as a thank you to those readers who went on this journey through the finite jests found in the hoax. It'd be much like the fake entries in encyclopedias meant to catch plagiarists, unique by design. Such an entry, if it appears in another book, proves the whole thing was nabbed, a hoax for us hoax catchers to find. But no, I realized that would defeat the point to tell the truth about those who weren't just telling it slant, but who also sought to make slants into truth. Spin, say so, hooey, fiddle, Mickey Mousing, jazzed. Esquivalence, dating from the late 19th century, means the willful avoidance of one's official responsibilities. According to the new Oxford American Dictionary, the term likely comes from the French esquive, dodge, slink away, except the entry is bunk, purposely made up to trap anyone who copied the dictionary. The ploy worked, people copied it. Its, quote, inherent fakitude is fairly obvious, the creator declared when the entry was discovered in 2005. We were trying to make a word that could not arise in nature. 
Today's hoaxes rely less on human nature or collective memory than cultural amnesia. We quickly erase hoaxes once exposed, excising the monstrous palimpsest, because as with any witch hunt or obvious fake afterward, we can't quite explain why we ever believed the outrageous thing in the first place. The resulting de-hoaxing leads to outrage. For the hoax reminds us, uncomfortably, that the stories we tell don't just express the society of the self, they construct it. Till now, we've spoken of our millennial narrative crisis as if the stories we tell could be separated from the self who tells them. But now it must be said, just as our technology outstrips its users, so have our contemporary stories more and more outstripped the self. The recent plagiarism plague and its corresponding confessions surf the sea change I call the age of euphemism. Euphemisms for sale, homemade, all natural, artisanal, <laughs> post-factual. I'm jumping ahead. Whenever euphemism leaps or seeps in, there's an opportunity for the hoax, marking and exploiting the schism between official language and the vernacular, the politician and the constituent, the self who commits the crime and the self that seeks to get out of it or that cannot believe it. Believe me, folks, ours is not a gilded age as Mark Twain labeled the end of the 19th century so much as a blinged out, bedazzled one. Malarkey, blather, blarney, tosh, twaddle, squivalence. The age of euphemism has its modern inheritor to P.T. Barnum, none other than our own Donald J. Trump. The Donald is a showman, and now the US president, I was writing this in 2016, one powerfully aware of media, by turns defiant of and dependent on it in ways that only reinforce the spectacle's power. Trump, too, bears other similarities to Barnum. Both endured and employed bankruptcies. Both also ran for office, Barnum unsuccessfully. Both planted fake news stories as a matter of course. Trump also watched the burning down of his symbolic American museum, Barnum's museum burned, which is to say his casino. Though even Barnum did not think to start a fake university or pretend to be his own public publicist or place fake magazine covers in his many properties. For Barnum, Humbug had to deliver a proper popular show. No matter what got people in the door, it was the crowds that were catered to, not the other way around. Barker, Inside Talker, Bunkum, Rube, <clears throat> the hoax's haunting familiar history of race was invoked by the likes of candidates, of candidate Trump, familiar as a figure of horror. Fake Indians, Mexican rapists, violent Negroes in their neighborhoods, invisible Asians. These are the same persistent fictions that the pseudoscience of the 19th century poured forth, trickled down, and traded up to our present day. <clears throat> Enacting a system of otherness for which blackface or brown Yellowface or red has become a crucial ritual. The point of blackface is not imitation. The point of the hoax is not accuracy. The objective is to present the deeply subjective as objective and racism as history or science or entertainment. What Trump heralds is a time when there are no more experts. 
I preferred fake news when it was simply called propaganda. Once I hoped that the 20th century would find us in the tail end of this narrative crisis and the age of euphemism, figures that we've traced with us since our nation's inception, the self-made man, the girl wonder, the inventor, the improviser, have now given way to or been revealed as euphemisms for the imposter, the spy, the forger, the plagiarist, the vampire, all of whom lie about pain and race, which they conflate as the same thing. All these selves across time are invented or imagined, but can only some of them are real. With the hoax more broadly, this is all the more troubling because what the hoax says about us isn't true, just as what plagiarism says about itself is untrue. Or rather, the only true is only true of our gullibility and misplaced trust. We collaborate with the hoax and collude with it. The hoaxer just gets there first, making unwilling co-conspirators of us all. I hate being right about this. <laughs> all along, I'd hoped this book would have a happy ending, to be able to say that though we've experienced a tsunami of hoaxes, the tide has crested and now we're on the other side. Smooth sailing from here on out. At least no more drowning. This wish seems to me now particularly American. Realizing what William Howells told Edith Wharton, or at least what we think he said, what the American public always wants is a tragedy with a happy ending. What if the truth is not an absolute or relative, but a skill, a muscle like memory that collectively we have neglected so much that we have grown measurably weaker at it? How might we rebuild it, going from chronic to bionic? The facts are on our side. Let's hope the fictions once again will be two. Funk, hokum, Blue Devils, The Trap, The Blues. Thanks. Thanks. I was going to read the whole thing, but it seemed too. <laughs> okay, can you all hear me? Because I'm, I have a low voice. Am I, is my Go this on? away. Yeah, you're on. Okay, hold on. You're fine. Am I good? Yeah, just speak up a little. All right. I'm going to turn this chair just a little bit. Yeah, let's do this. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So, hello, everyone. Hello. Um, so, uh, uh, as we were speaking earlier, this is a, this, this book is, um, is really not something one just reads. You really have to marinate in it. It's a kind of, as I was saying earlier, it's really kind of a sip and simmer. You kind of go in, get a little jolt. Revelation, come back and percolate on it, and um, that's how I read this book. And um, that's how I wrote it, sort of. Is it? <laughs> nice. So um, I want to just kind of take a step back because sure. I'm really interested in, first of all, how you get to this place and the journey of Revelation. Um, so I have read that your idea for this book came from uh, being in a situation where one of your colleagues. I would say lie, but perpetuated a hoax saying that he had, ca he had cancer when he didn't have cancer. Yeah. Oh, and a second part of that question, I wanted you to tell that story, is um, 
I, I was telling you earlier, I think most people, if that had happened, you'd kind of think, oh, either that person's mentally ill or is an asshole. And, and then and kind of leave it at that and move on. And you didn't. That You started working well, on that. I mean, this was in college, mm -hmm. so it was a long time ago. Okay. Uh, and it was, it was on, honestly probably only fairly recently, maybe in the midst of starting to write the book, that I realized, oh, he, he didn't really have cancer either. So um, what happened is that we uh, worked on a travel guide at, at, uh, when I was in college called Let's Go. Um, I think I don't even know what Let's Go is now, but it was a huge travel guide then. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and I did the USA one. Uh, the biggest one was Let's Go Europe, and people would carry it around. Um, and uh, the head of the whole thing, the managing editor, who you know, we would work for 24 hours at a time, you know, on these, with literal physical copies of the book that we would take apart and write on. Um, last year's edition, we would update that way. Uh, it was pretty, you know, old-fashioned. Um, and uh, it was my first sort of foray into publishing. And he one day came in and he said, you know, I, I uh, just have to tell you, and his voice started breaking, that I have cancer. Everyone was very upset, of course. And um, like three days later, he, his hair was gone. And I realized, like, oh, that's not how it works, you know. Um, <laughs> when you're older, you're like, you know, that's not how it happens. So um, I realized later, and I, in fact, a, fr a mutual, I wouldn't say friend, but we both knew him. He had been a poet, actually, or became a poet. And I even had that weird thing where I was like, were his poems all fake, you know? Um, and I went back and looked. I don't think they are. I couldn't find them as plagiarisms, um, which is weird that he had this sort of side. Yeah because poets are very honest. Um, <laughs> but also because uh, then he went on to do more hoaxes. So he's been written about before. Oh, yeah, he, wrote, he did the financial hoaxes. He uh, was a bigamist. He, mm. I mean, he, did a, he was not well, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I think that came to me later, you know, that he, I had known someone and had this brush with it. And what was that about? And it seemed at the same, a kind of weird mix that I see in the hoax in general, which was kind of a mix of power and helplessness. Mm. It was kind of the power of being a victim or the power of uh, tragedy. And I do think that's what we're in now. The hoax now, you would never have a hoax where things worked out great, you know? Uh, and someone said that, you know, War of the Worlds, the famous hoax where Orson Welles did a radio show. I mean, it's named after a novel. You'd think people would not be, uh, but they believed it. Uh, and there's been disputes recently about how many people believe it. Certainly enough to make it a thing where people took their guns and went out in their yard. Um, but someone said they wouldn't, it wouldn't be as believable if the aliens came down and uh, said they were nice, you know, or like, we want to be friends. It was that kind of threat that made it super believable. And that, I think, has translated now uh, into all the, when you hear about Pizzagate or anything, it's the worst of the worst. So wait, so you're going back and you're thinking about this experience, and then how does that start to form in your mind the, the idea to do this? It was more there were all these hoaxes around, you know, like um, James Fry uh, had a million little pieces, which was just fun, like you get your popcorn out and you watch it. Uh, and I, but at the same time, I started thinking, people talk about hoaxes like they're uh, like a goof, you know, or a prank. But they seemed really about deep things. Uh, James Fry's hoax, um, you know, said he was in jail when he wasn't. Uh, he or said he was in prison for months, and he was really in jail for like five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, 
amazing. And um, <laughs> then he, you know, so he, and then he was, got on a plane with blood down in front of his shirt, you know, when you can't take an extra carry-on. I mean, there were a lot of things <laughs> that seemed unbelievable about it. And there was word around the street that, you know, he, he had written that as a novel and then turned it into a memoir, which is what happened. But it's how, what it was about. It was about addiction and uh, getting, you know, uh, uh, and death and suicide and getting your tooth worked on without um, anesthesia. It's a little like Lance Armstrong, um, yeah. who, who also pretended to be su sort of superhuman and beyond pain, but it's all about pain. And, and so those kind of combinations are really alluring to us, and I want to understand why. And, and you know, this guy I knew in college, uh, in fact, he appears in the Lance Armstrong part. Okay, so, um, so you're starting to put this together, and one of the things that, uh, that for me was revelatory about this book is that you're, you begin to, to put together kind of the evolution of the hoax as it intertwines with race and gender. So sure. race and racism, gender and misogyny. And, and then placing that within a landscape of what's happening in, at, at that time. As you're doing this research, I, I don't, are you going in thinking that race has some connection to this? Where were the moments of epiphany? Yeah. Well, it's, I knew that um, hoaxes couldn't be what, about pranks. You know, they weren't mm -hmm. just these larks. They seemed deeply serious or deeply invested, and we were deeply invested in them. I mean, uh, even P.T. Barnum, the million the little pieces, is millions of copies sold, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, because he had pretended to be in prison, he wrote a sequel to that first hoax. I mean, book. Sorry, um, and uh, in it, he's in jail. And he, um, has, he teaches a black prisoner named uh, Porterhouse um, to read. Um, and why is he called Porterhouse? I, I don't know. <laughs> He's juicy as a pork chop or something. Um, why, does, can people guess what book he uses to teach the mythical Porterhouse to read? Huckleberry, Huckleberry Finn is absolutely correct. Yeah. So here he is playing with race talking about this important American text that's infused with race, you know, and it's just all so weird that this was presented as true, you know, and that it's still on the shelf as true, even though the first book has been disproven. So, you know, it's like a strange kind of thing, and that started to gnaw at me. And I started writing, and the more I read, the further back this went. Uh, and it started with Barnum for me. And, but you could even go back to the British hoaxes, which were very popular, as I note, in the 18th century, uh, when they're wrestling with Shakespeare, and you know, there's all these Shakespeare fakes, and, and they're trying to come to terms with their own identity as a nation, and I think we very much were. And that's why I think some of the Americanness crept in, and the Americanness, unfortunately, dovetails very closely with race, and the rise of race as a science, uh, and the hoax, as a way of expressing the deep divisions in our culture. But, but, but was it race in, in order to establish or reinforce racial hierarchy? Sure. Okay. I mean, there isn't a, another kind of race, I'm sad to say. Hmm. So what I came to understand is that not only was race and the hoax came up around the same time, the term the hoax is invented in like 1750. We know almost exactly the, you know, there were people lied for years, but um, there was a decade that this came about. And it's a really right around the same time that in Europe, the 
ideas of race start to harden and start to become theories. Um, people had always noticed that Europeans had written about difference, but they didn't totally understand. You see Thomas Jefferson trying to understand why there are people like the leopard boy who is losing pigmentation. And is pigment, you know, could black people become white was a very real kind of distinction. A hundred years later, that is not even close to being an idea, and it's also the hierarchies have only hardened. So I, I became almost dispirited by the ways that the hoax marches along and accompanies the race, race on its journey to being a, quote, science. And, and so can we talk about the, the moon? The moon um, hoax? hoax and how it reinforced that? Yeah, I love the moon hoax. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, it's funny because it, it just sold a ton of papers. You know, it really made this form uh, a, a viable one. And you remember that picture where you saw the balloons carrying? I started thinking a lot about Balloon Boy. Do you remember who was trapped mm. in a balloon, supposedly? <laughs> yeah. um, and how that kind of hit when the internet and our phones were just starting to be, you know, the things we lived on. Um, and so there's a way in which this stuff is always tied to technology. Uh, and the moon hoax, I think, was a way of thinking about the biggest questions of the day, but transferred to the moon. Um, this happens regularly. We, we imagine a world, but somehow it's got us in it, right? And so the moon hoax, I think, is thinking about race displaced. And even on the moon, there are these hierarchies of being with the man bet. These were fantastical stories. I know, yeah, there's beavers, upright beavers. Um, and they all seem kind of coded once you start to look at them. All right, so I wanna talk a little bit about how then, as you're doing your work and you're seeing the way in, these, in which race is starting to replicate itself, reinforcing the hoax, how does gender come in? Well, I, I think that, you know, if you were writing about hoaxes, which people you know, have for a while, and what's fascinating is the people who have written about hoaxes, like Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, has a book about hoaxes, yeah. which really made me, it was like his next book after Dracula. And I started thinking a lot about vampires and fakery and what it means. Um, and you know, even the vampire gets read as this kind of class critique of, uh, Bram Stoker was Irish, you know? So what is, the, uh, what are vampires really about, but what are hoaxes really about? And I forgot your question. You were... Gender. Gender. So um, I think that what, if you were, old, once upon a time you would write about people who were trans really as hoaxing uh, mm -hmm. and pretending. And I, you know, that in religion I really tried to make sure, clear was not, like that's not for us to say. Instead I really started thinking about spiritualism for instance, and how spiritualists we're often faking. Now, it's one thing to say I believe in spirits who are, may communicate to us. I mean, this is still a popular idea, even in small ways, you know. And um, some of my favorite writers have spiritualist writing, whether it's Yeats or Lucille Clifton, you know. So it wasn't like I wanted to take apart that. But the, you know, the idea of spirit photography, which is that you could capture a picture of this, as this gentleman named Mumler, what a great name, Mumler did. <laughs> In the 1860s, he started taking these pictures in Boston and charging like $10 a picture, which is a whole lot of money. Um, and so people would see their loved ones, or he would depict uh, Mary Todd Lincoln after the assassination of Lincoln and the death of her two sons, comes and sits for him famously. And he takes a picture of her with Lincoln and her sons there, you know? And she is, the look on her face is beatific. She is, you know, a not well woman, but she's very happy in this picture. 
And, I, and there's something really criminal about it, but also sort of colluding with, we collude with that. You know, we go and sit, and we want to believe this thing. And it's no accident that that happens in the 1860s when it's during the Civil War, you know. It's no accident that there were, that also spiritualism provided an interesting thing for women, especially women of color, because it was mostly a women-dominated movement. And so I was really interested in the ways that race and gender played together in those <coughs> women who were observing and became mediums, and they were the most powerful uh, mediums. It was sort of acknowledged that women were most powerful. But at the same time, you have the Fox sisters who invented sort of spiritualism, telling on each other and then claiming, you know, saying that one or the other, they did the okay. knocking, yeah. And didn't P.T. Barnum have a problem with all this? All he people? did. He didn't like that because it, you know, he said he would give someone a hundred dollars, uh, maybe it's more than that, like a tens of thousands of dollars, if they could prove an actual picture to his satisfaction. They never did. Um, but I think he was really jealous because <laughs> everyone else was sort of making money off this thing that he wished he could have cornered the market on. Uh, case in point, there's a figure called uh, the Cardiff Giant which was a figure found in upstate uh, New York. And um, people th really thought that this kind of gypsum, it was carved out of gypsum, was like an old race you know, of beings. And P.T. Barnum offered just an ungodly sum of money. I think that was also tens of thousands of dollars for the Cardiff giant. They refused to sell to him, so he just made his own. Um, <laughs> and so Barnum was always doing stuff like that, you know, and uh, thinking about. How, and even that seemed to me to play into our notions of race and origin and nativeness. Okay, so then speaking of that, then what about uh, the, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, Carcassian? Car Circassian woman? Yes. Funny you should ask. Um, this is some of the Circassians. So this is the original Circassian. This is a pamphlet. It's hard to see there. But this is what she looked like. Um, Zuluma Agro was the first one. And, uh, P.T. Barnum in the 1860s again, he says to um, his second in command, go find me a girl. He literally, there's like a letter where he's like, buy me one, basically. And so he goes and he can't find one in the Middle East. And so he then, a woman walks in and he says, well, you'll do. And he creates this thing called the Sarcassian Beauty. And he, um, they have what is called mossed hair, you can sort of see, and they dress exotically. And they would sometimes do other things like be sword sellers or ride horses, but they were also supposed to be the height of beauty. And what was amazing is um, they kind of looked like uh, black ladies with afros, mm -hmm. but they were supposed to be the height of white beauty. And Sarcassian and Caucasian are the same uh, region. And this little girl here, I found in the archive, and I thought, well, that's just like a little black girl. Mm -hmm. You know, you might know. And so what does it mean for them? You know, uh, for certainly there were many black women who were passing and as the ultimate in whiteness. So there's this really fascinating kind of mix of, of what all that means uh, at the time. So I was really interested in that, and Barnum, it showed a lot of things that Barnum was really still had it, you know, uh, many years later, but also that he knew how to manipulate race and think about race in important ways. And so he was passing women, these the women off as the ultimate. As Circassian, yeah. But they were everywhere. They weren't just in Barnum's camp. They were a popular act. Okay, but that there's an, that there's an audience for this. What does it say about the audience? What is yeah. Well, I think, you know, when we, 
the best analogy I have, because sometimes you see people say, oh, audiences were like not as smart back then, but I think they were very sophisticated. And the way I try to make an analogy for it, it was a little like reality TV. Um, you watch it, you go, and you know it's kind of fake, but you kind of are rooting for people anyway. Um, and there's a quality of, of suspending disbelief, but also your all, you know, the fakery is yeah. part of the pleasure. Um, and so it's mass appeal. I mean, reality TV uh, happens right, I think, around when the, all our hoaxes start. And I think that Barnum's uh, you know, beginning are very much tied up with the change in media, the change in American life, and you know, wrestling over these kinds of questions, these deep divisions. And I think the hoax always does that. So was our, um, was our collusion then with a hoax back then, and, and then maybe t to degree now with reality TV? Or, or just the news. Yeah, or the news. Um, was that a was that the dishonest good time? That <laughs> I mean, I think it was. It provided then a tragedy with a happy ending. Yeah. I mean, the Sarcassian uh, was always under threat of white slavery and all these questions, but there was actual slavery going on, of black slaves. So there was a real <laughs> displacement happening yeah. in these kind of issues. Same thing with, uh, you know, what is it? So. The issue of the day was slavery. It was in the papers, it was circulating in the papers, and so were hoaxes. And so we can't disentangle these, it's not an accident. And I think in our own time, some of the, you see that a lot of the divisions and issues, say in the last election, the Russian bots, for instance, they targeted these very same things, these questions of race, these deep divisions, that, and they very literally said, we could exploit this because this nation hasn't sorted it all out. So it's hoax as a reinforcement of racial hierarchy, hoax as diversion. I mean, this all does sound modern. Sounds like, familiar. Mm, right. Um, then hoax as, if we go ba back to PT and, sure. and we're looking at, we're a young nation and we're looking at identity and who mm -hmm. we are as a young country, it's hoax then as even a means to unify. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a desire to. And so you might as well do it around a fake thing. I mean, there's a nostalgia for it. Um, I, I think there was a way in which, you know, Barnum offered to make America great again yet again. You know, there was this before the letter notion of we were great under George Washington or, uh, you know, here's an image of the fallen woman. Uh, we were once great. Let's think about that together. Let's enjoy that together in a spectacle. Okay. But I also would say one other thing that came, I came to understand, which is that I started out trying to understand the ways that the hoax was dependent on race, and then I really, by the end, started to understand the ways that race itself was a hoax, that it was a fake thing pretending to be real. And, and that doesn't mean, and in fact, it makes it harder to kill um, as a notion, and that doesn't mean that racism isn't real, but instead that the questions around race have become so uh, embedded but filled with imagination that they're very hard to A, talk about, and B, uh, talk away. <clears throat> so then when, and you were, um, you were referring to this in the, in the middle of the book. Yeah. When did then that kind of pivot turn where we move from the dishonest good time to f from the kind of glory, I yeah. guess, to to something that is really corrupting. Yeah. 
Is, is there a single pivot? I mean, I want to say it's like 1912. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe 1910. Um, you know, there's a, fa so a few fascinating points. You know, there's not one only moment, but for instance, uh, in 1910, Virginia Woolf says, uh, human, uh, on or around December 1910, human character changed, she says. Uh, and she wrote this in 1925. I think she's kind of right. Um, and what she was trying to describe is really modernism or modernity. Um, and what I say in the book is, we could move that just a few months earlier, where she was in a hoax in blackface called the Dreadnought Hoax, oh. where she pretended, and well, along with her brother and a few other uh, sort of rascals, they dressed in blackface and then had two interpreters and pretended they were Abyssinian royalty and got on the most famous warship of the time, the Dreadnought. Uh, and they had free reign, they walked around. She saw a cousin of hers, uh, didn't recognize her. She was also you know, dressed as a man, too. Um, but what's weird is people write about this as a kind of, again, a lark. And I was like, oh, but she was in blackface. Um, don't we have to kind of think about that, at least, and, and talk about what that meant? And you know, I think she, it helped her, in that moment, claim this royalty, this sort of privilege. Um, and then also um, a kind of superiority over that. Because it wasn't just that people came and they saw people from foreign lands, uh, I'll show you one, and thought, oh, you know, that's an interesting person. They also looked at them and thought they were a little superior to that person. Hmm. And that's what I think some of this happened. I'm skipping ahead. This is Cannibal Jim, he's sometimes called that, or Fiji Jim and his uh, wife, Anne. And I love this picture. Wow. Because they look very regal and royal to me. They look like my like cousins or something. <laughs> and I think he was Fijian and she might be African American. Um, but they were, you know, in this dance too in an interesting way. And so I'm really interested in the ways that, like uh, William Johnson, who's on the cover of the book and on the inside, carved their own way in this system um, and made sort of something out of it. But what was, I mean, but, but what, I mean, what happened? I don't understand what. What do you mean what happened? I mean, how, how did, how did oh, we. Oh, well, how, why did it get so bad? Yeah, why are we how, now? So now we're talking about really where you're measuring the hoax. I think you, you say this in your book, that a hoax is, has to be measured by its. By its harm. harm. Yeah, I think starting in the teens and 20s, the hoax started changing. It started becoming something that was like I said, a bit more focused on horror. Right. And then by the 40s, certainly by uh, War of the Worlds, it's filled with that. Uh, I can't think of any hoaxes sort of past then, excepting maybe a couple poetry hoaxes, which people are sometimes shocked to hear there's poetry hoaxes. Um, <laughs> but there are. Um, and I had to take some of them out, which was tough. But you know, even those, you know, uh, the more recent ones are horrific. So uh, someone pretending to be a, a Hiroshima survivor and writing poems about it. And, uh, someone, uh, you know, pretending to be a Holocaust survivor and writing those poems, you know. So those kind of pretend things, if you start to think about it, the horrors we were also experiencing as part of the modern world, I think kind of translate into the hoax. But also, uh, I think people started, and I think this is a recent thing, so we said we were going to get into this a little bit about thinking yeah, about are. the recent, uh, and I think that people now, want the world to be as bad as they fear it is. And so sometimes it's almost reassuring if someone says, you're right. 
You know, your worst fear is X, you know, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, for instance, Susan Smith, the woman who drowned her kids and then claimed a black man had taken them. If you look at that picture, it's the most stereotypical kind of picture that was drawn as a sketch. But it really had real effects. Again, the harm is obviously to her children beyond a doubt, but also to this notion of sort of uh, testimony and people were arrested and swept and, you know, our, it sort of builds this uh, horrible monster even more. And that kind of invisible monster, who I think is part of the hoax, gets more and more hard to shake. And, you know, I was writing the book sort of right and finishing it in the midst of police shootings and various fears and Michael Brown, who has a part in the book too, how do we get past that? You know, how do we get past that imaginary uh, figure? And I took a little hope, because I was in Boston when um, uh, Charles, what's his name, shot, Stewart, shot his pregnant wife and claimed a black mm -hmm. man had done it. And that caught, you know, that was for weeks that people believed him and sort of demonized the black community there. Uh, and so it took only a few days, so hopefully it's better. But even in the midst of this book, uh, of the book coming out, there were people doing the same thing over and over. So is it in this context that you see blackface or people who are pretending to be Indian, it's a kind of, is it that kind of negation, the harm and the negation of? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, the fake native folk, some people call pretendians, which um, I think is an interesting term. But, you know, you see someone like Grey Owl, who was a figure who pretended to be First Nations, and well, he pretended to be different things. Um, but he's really British. His name was Archie Delaney, I think. Um, and he grew up with, you know, the kind of Im popular image, the American exported image of uh, Native peoples in the 19th century. And he, in the 30s, became a famous conservationist. He had beaver, not biped beaver like the moon hoax, but beaver in his cabin. Um, they built a special, he was a part of, excuse me, the park service in Canada. Um, he would go on tours, he made a lot of money, and he you know, was like fake tanning himself, you know, um, and darkening his skin. And, and uh, he also, there's something someone said that he always w wore a scowl, you know, no. because that was more believable. And I started to realize that part of the story he was telling that made it believable is that he was only talking about extinction and about native extinction, but also extinction of the beaver, extinction of wildlife. And this thread continues. Uh, you know, so that's the horror there, starting in the 30s. And you see it you know, all the time. There's a figure named Nazdij, who I follow in the book, who uh, right around the time of James Fry got exposed, and he was a pretend uh, native person and, and but they all had this you know horror so is that what you're referring to oh, I have to make sure that I get this phrase right you okay. you when you say the dark double yeah I mean I think the dark double is something that we have in literature from Huck Finn on if not before um, and you know a lot of our 19th century writers uh, made use of this double um, Sometimes in amazing ways, I think Walt Whitman's I, am, I was the man, I suffered, I was there, his being able to say he was the slave, he goes with the team also, he says. You know, he is all the, the folks. That is a very American notion. But then there's this other American notion of uh, the con artist and the confidence man, which is an American term. You know? 
And it, it too grows up around the same time as the hoax in America and Barnum and um, these questions of race. So I think the dark double comes in a weird way from our fiction and our stories we tell about ourselves, but then it becomes most dangerous around the hoax when it pretends to be real. So um, you have a great one. You have a ton of great line, lines in here. These like kind of well, pop. Thank you. They, they do. They pop out. But this one, I so this one I wanted to, you to elaborate on too, sure. where you because you said you mentioned a con, um, where you say. So the common phrase is seeing is believing. Ah. But you say hoaxes prove that believing is seeing. Sure. So that again is a dialogue with the, with the person who's perpetuating the hoax? Yeah, I mean, I started out thinking, why do people deceive? You know, I really was interested in that. That was those three questions I had at the beginning. By the end, I was really interested in why we believe. Yeah. You know, why do we fall for these things? That, and one of the aspects of the hoax that make it really interesting is once it's revealed, it's so obvious. It's pretty hard to put that back in the box. Now, we're in a weird moment now where it's like we can't get out of the hoax, you know, the hoax just kicks around and kicks around, and in a weird way, it sucks all the energy out of actual, you know, sexual abuse scandals, worrying about Pizzagate, takes us away from, you know, the huge revelations we've had recently about the church or, you know, uh, all kinds of churches. <laughs> this is troubling, but we instead are focused on the fakery, and I think that is kind of uh, one of the haunting parts of right now. Right. We were, when we were speaking earlier, it does, to, to me, really feel sometimes like this entire time is a hoax. And, and if revelation um, is, is part of the hoax, right? Yeah. Revelation doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't, I mean, even when the, tr when the truth is revealed, it's, it's still perpetuated so that it is possible, um, and, and I know people who still believe Pizzagate is a real thing, and it doesn't matter yeah. that it's been disproved. And is there a precedent for that in history? In history? Um, I think we're in a bad patch. Um, <laughs> I'm here to break the bad news. Um, and I, the thing that gives me hope about it is that we have been here in, in some version before. And so I do think these things are cyclical in some way. Um, I do think they come out in times of unease and deep divisions. I sort of trace the age of euphemism to really right around uh, sort of Watergate around then. And it's, what's odd is in the 60s, a t very turbulent time, by all accounts, there aren't that many hoaxes. You know, so it's a, it isn't simply turbulence that causes hoax. It's a kind of a need for a story that we want to believe. And sometimes, and race has been that national story for us more often than not. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, gender too, all these things kind of play into it. But what's, I think, hardest is the hoax gets in there in those deep divisions and exploits them. Right. And sometimes it says, I'm, I'm going to heal over it, but it's less and less now. And so it says, yeah, you know, you're scared of X, you know, uh, Muslim terrorists, we're going to give you some, you know. Uh, and you think the Twin Towers, you can't process that horror of the Twin Towers being destroyed. We're going to tell you it did, they weren't destroyed or they never were there or it was, you know, all the kind of crazy conspiracies. And that was the one thing I wasn't 
I think, uh, able to write about totally, and I'm not sure I could have, is the, the appeal of conspiracy theory, which I think has only grown. Uh, but we made the internet, right? Uh, not, Al Gore made the internet, but um, <laughs> we, we, we like lived in it and we made it how it is. So in f some way we could try and, and pull it back and change it. And so how do you then keep cynicism at bay? I mean, it's, it's really difficult. How do, what do we do? Tell us what to do. <laughs> As your spiritual leader. Yeah. Um, I, How do we even form ourselves? How do we yeah. gird ourselves? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. There's no one formula. The, one of the things that heartens me is that, you know, you can get down on journalism. It can seem very uh, caught up in some of these kind of questions. But I know in the book that all the journalistic hoaxes were caught by journalists. Right. You know, journalists really do care about these things called facts. Uh, and, and they want us to want to get them right. I do think and I, I, that journalism doesn't do a great job of describing what it does. You That's know, true. we don't always say, like, what I do is not say, this is what I think. I ask 10 people about what Harvey Weinstein did, right. you know? And so sourcing, you know, is, is not something we uh, always are good at teaching. And uh, so there's two things I would say. One is sort of quite uh, literal and practical, and one is a bit more, I don't know, loosey-goosey or something. Uh, which should we do first? Let's do practical, practical first. let's end with loosey-goosey. I think, I think you should go to your local library. <laughs> um, this sounds weird, but librarians have been for generations and especially now, the source of good, solid information. And even better, they tell us how to find that information. Uh, they tell us what a source is, they tell us how to source things. I thought this long before I ran a library, it's why I wanted to have the chance to run uh, the Schomburg Center, where you know, one of the th reasons the Schomburg Center was created in 1925 is because our founder, Arturo Schomburg, was told as a little boy there was no black history. And he set about proving that person wrong. And what he did is accumulate what he called vindicating evidences. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't so much you know, one thing that's going to you know, prove them wrong. I mean, if someone doesn't want to believe that, it's fine. But once you see the 11 million, his 10,000 items are now 11 million items. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to now say there is no history, right? Um, so that, I think, is an important thing. Um, you can participate, I think, in this kind of question and back and forth. I think the other thing, and it is a bit harder, but I think it's important, is not to be cynical. Um, Mary Carr has a great quote that I use in the book where she says, doubt is the new American religion, you know? Because you don't want to be yes. caught believing. Or so, but what that actually has done is made people very gullible. Um, being so cynical, if you say everything is fake, once you find something that hits a little bit, you, it's all, all in, you know? And so cynicism, the, the, the kind of, that's why fake news as an idea, you know, and I think this is a big shift. It used to be uh, the hoax was something you did. Now a hoax is something you accuse another person of. Mm. You are hoaxing. Mm. You're fake. You know, and that's like reality TV, too. It, it's like that's the worst thing you can say to someone on reality TV is you're not here for the right reasons. 
you're fake. Um, <laughs> and it sounds horrible, right? Everyone's like, that is really bad. But, um, you know, why is that? Okay, you know, um, I'm on a reality show. There are cameras, you know. Um, but it's because you're showing up the whole thing. Are you watching The Bachelor? I did watch The Bachelor. We'll talk about The Bachelor later. <laughs> Hopefully in the Q&A. Um, but I think really that kind of everything is fake leads to you to believe. And I, instead, I, I think we should adopt what I think is kind of a journalistic stance, which is being skeptical. And skepticism can be really healthy. It, instead of sort of rejecting everything, maybe ask some questions about things, mm -hmm. even the source where you're getting news, um, even of each other. But also, I think the other side of that is being generous to those, especially folks who aren't maybe exactly like us. I think that idea of us fearing other people and ha wanting to believe other people how we fear they are um, is really real. And how do, you know, it seems to me we have to fight that as well as fighting sort of our own cynicism. Uh, so those are my best well, thank formulas. You. Yeah. Thank you very much. I think it's time for, might be past time, I'm sorry, for audience questions. Do we have I'd love to hear what they say. Yeah. Coming around, there we go. Um, and we'd like to open it up to a couple of questions, if anyone has one. Otherwise, I know Tina probably has more and can I do. keep so, it going. Uh, while you go are right lining ahead. up. There's one in the back there. Oh, oh. There's oh. some down front. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Your eagle eye view there. But you can jump in in a minute. OK. Well, I don't Hi. know if we have a Hi, thank you. Uh, I'm wondering how you would say the idea of a hoax changes when the perpetrator starts to shift to believing the hoax? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think that it doesn't change that much for me. Um, I think that often con artists have to believe a little bit of the hoax. Um, should I say this? Um, <laughs> I, 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 like, I think, for instance, like R. Kelly, I think there's a way in which he's like, this isn't me. He really thinks that. You know, there's a kind of deep divide down the middle. So, sorry, see, I told you. Down the middle of people who are sort of faking themselves so much. So it can be, you know, there's a moment where I, I'm like, oh, they're not lying in that moment. I think that's what's powerful about a con artist is they're kind of believing it in the moment, or at least, you know, they're not um, taking confidence for you. You're giving your confidence to them. And they're kind of loaning it back and forth between the two of you. And they have to, in one way, believe it. And um, so I'm not sure it changes that much. Um, it does seem strange when you encounter someone who's saying things that you know they don't even believe. I mean, it's almost worse, right? They're like, I'm going to tell you anything. And you might just believe it. Um, I don't know who might be like that, but there are people <laughs> like that in the world. where, it, And I think that's even worse. I mean, there's a. Uh, a book called On Bullshit that's about this very idea that, that BS is different from what I would call hoaxing or humbug because it ignores the truth entirely. If you're lying, you have to at least go towards some idea of the, lie, of the truth, you know, even if you're ignoring it. BS, you're like, it doesn't matter, actually, because tomorrow you'll care about something else. And so that kind of layering on, that can be really hard to undo. Sorry, cursed. At the front 
Hey, thanks so much, Kevin, for coming out. This thanks. is really, really cool. Um, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. Oh, okay. <laughs> you said something about, well, a, a point about poets um, kind of faking their poems, whether they were like Hiroshima victims. No, no, I was talking about was a that? specific... Some specific hoaxers. Okay, specific hoaxers. So that got me thinking about a New Yorker article that I'm not going to put you on the spot because I have like 1,400 on my coffee table. Um, but one of these articles talked about, is it appropriate ever, or the conversation about writers writing outside of their narrative oh, okay. and their experiences, and whether that's appropriate or whether that's cultural appropriation or whatever it is. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that there's a line of when writing becomes, and the writer starts engaging in a hoax, mm. when they start writing outside of their narrative, or is it always a hoax, or what's your position on that? Um, writers, they're tricky. <laughs> they're tricky, aren't they? Um, I mean, I, I think I've, I try to make it pretty clear the difference between a hoax and fiction in the book. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it isn't just tell the truth but tell it slant. It's, as I said, making a slant seem like the truth. Um, and so there's much more of a, you know, agenda. But we wouldn't have the novel, for instance, if it wasn't for pretending to be a journal or pretending to be letters from... So, so there is a kind of quality that we have to understand, and I try to in the book and trace it. Uh, do I think that you can appropriate? Of course there's appropriation. But I also think that there is honoring stories. You know, you, you have to be able to imagine as a person. Um, for me, what the hoax does is it damages not just the truth, but also art. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's is almost its worst thing, is that we now start to believe the only things that can move us are things that are absolutely 100% true. And we know from, you know, if you go see an abstract painting, it can move you uh, deeply. Is it true? Is it, I mean, these are all kind of uh, notions that we have to think about. So for me, uh, that damage to art is really important. And I spent my whole first book, uh, The Grey Album of Nonfiction, thinking about the fruitful side of lying and what I call storying, improv improvisation. And so I for sure think that you should be able to imagine a world and occupy it and, and you know, play with it and go away from it and, and engage it. You know, that's what some of our greatest writers, whether it's Octavia Butler or Lucille Clifton are doing. They're creating worlds, um, and you know, we believe them and go with them. And I think that should be taken very differently than the kind of mean-spirited, reductive appropriation that I think someone like Rachel Dolezal uh, engages in. You know, one of the things she isn't doing is saying black people are really diverse and interesting. She's saying they're like this. Mm -hmm. They are, again, going extinct and tragic, you know? And I happen to uh, believe more what Toy Derricotte says, that joy is an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. And that pleasure, uh, which, you know, we can forget <laughs> sometimes, you know, is a, is a powerful act if we can say it right, you know? Um, I, I believe in the blues more than anything. I, I guess I ended up ending my book with it because I think it's a kind of solution. It's an art that is saying, you know, I went down to the station with my suitcase in my hand, Robert Johnson says. You know that's not good, you know, if you have to go down to the station. But he, but he doesn't tell you what he had for breakfast. He doesn't talk about, you know, what he's wearing. He's talking about this thing in here, which is the true part. Now, I have problems with people who 
steal blues music and make money off it, you know, and those questions of power. So there's all this stuff about plagiarism in the book and how, you know, uh, the first lady stole from the previous first lady an entire speech um, and, and sort of those kind of questions of power. Uh, so it's complicated and I hope I answer it in the book, you know. Got one over on this side. Thank you. Um, what about that Jussie guy? I forget his last name. Oh, the um, Smollett. Smollett, right. yeah. And um, who? Uh, it was. I, I think that. I was, think that one's complicated too. I haven't heard the resolution on that. Well, he he was apparently paid these two guys. Well, they now they say he was, didn't pay those guys. Oh, really? Yeah, Twitter, it happens part. fast on Twitter, yeah, man. <laughs> you gotta keep up. It's like he's, he's out, he's in, he's, you know. But people right away, when he was supposed to have paid them, uh, chi chimed in and said that the harm had been done to people who really had been attacked sure. for homophobic or racist reasons. And it, it, it seems like, a, yeah, it's, very, it's a very interesting hoax, I think. And they had him on TV talking about it all the time before it even came out that it was a hoax, maybe. I mean, I think there's, I, I still am stuck on like, you know, the like congressional testimony that happened that like, I don't know if we're still talking about it anymore, that accused huge conspiracies and horrible things. That's like Jesse Smollett seems like small potatoes um, mm -hmm. compared to sort of our national questions. But I do think he gets, you know, like he's trying to figure his stuff out, you know, and some people do that in public. Uh, that's not so good. <laughs> what else? I've got one. Uh, so in previous artist uh, talks, uh, there's been something that was brought up about uh, people using CGI in movies or ah. commercials oh, to bring yeah. actors back to life. Yeah, like Tupac. Hoax. Yeah. Oh, he's never—he's not really dead though. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think about that? I don't think about it. You know, <laughs> I don't like it. I mean, like Prince—they're trying to do that. For, oh my God. So you know, now you have to have a clause in your will, like, please don't bring me back, cryogenically or CGI, and put me—you know—but I mean. I'll say all that, but then I'll say like the last Fast and the Furious, where they did that with Paul Walker's performance. It's an amazing. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those films, but they're amazing, crazy, multicultural, improbable. I don't know. It's like the opposite of a hoax. It's like take all the bad stuff and we'll turn it on its head. It'll be every nation represented in The Rock, and um, you know, like The Rock saves. You know, there's a scene in that movie where they jump through two skyscrapers on a car. How can you not? You know, that's the the other kind of American bluster sent abroad, and um, I don't see it as so unrelated. But uh, maybe one day I, um, soon I'll write about sort of that part of of the American imagination. All right, got another question over on this side. Yeah. Hello, Hello Kevin. Thank you for uh, coming down to our school. My name is Javon Brock, 3D animation. My question to you. Oh, is that the question? <laughs> my question to you is um, do you see a difference between like a hoax and like clout chasing? Is, is it kind of the clout same thing? Chasing. Do you know what clout chasing is? I mean, I, I think I do, but maybe explain it Cal for the rest of the Clout chasing is just like doing something on the internet for attention. Yeah. 
I mean, unfortunately, they, they've become kind of the same. I, I do think that, you know, the kinds of fakery, to me, I just start to, it all start, like, the sequel, you know, uh, could write itself. You know, it's like you'd start with the fire Festival, um, <laughs> which was, I mean, amazing. Um, and I have a story to tell about that I can't tell now, but it's amazing. And the, I didn't go there or anything. Uh, but, and then you would, you would, like, would you end with the crazy, like, getting your kid into college, paying half a million dollars, um, you know, photoshopping them on other soccer on players? Soccer teams, yeah. that, would that be part of it? Because it's hard to you know, tease one thing out. We're in such a uh, place of uh, that. But I guess I'm asking the deeper question, like why did we get to that place? Or what's it really about? And a lot of it's about class and race and uh, achieving. And I, I think that, and appearing to achieve, which is a very American notion, keeping up with the Joneses. So sure, you know. Um, but I, I guess I would ask a larger question, like why does that happen for us? You know, why do, are we invested in it? <clears throat> and I think it does have a lot to do with our notions of class and also our notions of you can reinvent yourself. That's okay, there's, a, you know, there's no end to the movie. I in fact had chapters trying to think about the movies about con artists and there just were too many to um, sort of, they're all heroes in, in American culture, the con artist is, not usually seen as a bad thing. A little, little trickery, you know, that's what you need. Um, so it's hard to separate it out. That's a great question. Yeah. I think we've got another one over there. More. Yeah. Hi. Hi, um, how are you? Um, you kind of talked about people having a willingness to believe a hoax even after it's been disproven. And I was wondering about your opinion on the vaccines causing autism, you know, even after the scientist who published sure. that study. He was a he, hoaxer. Yeah, even after he was kicked out of the scientific community. Do you think that um, people choosing to believe this comes out of a desperation to kind of explain this condition? Sure. I mean, or do you think? I mean, I think you answered at least <laughs> your, your part of the question. I mean, I think it's really hard for us to talk about pain, you know. Um, and, you know, it becomes a strange thing where there is a kind of, uh, especially th that instance, I think, it's not been served by our specific media's desire to kind of both sideism. You know, it doesn't work always. Slavery happened. You can't like have arguments about whether it happened. You can talk about, and you can't really have arguments about whether the Civil War was about slavery. You can talk about what uh, else the Civil War was about and various causes. So it becomes a strange thing. But again, it goes to everyone's an expert, but then also no one's an expert now. And so it's a strange moment where it's like, I feel that this happens. Um, and it's really tough because I, I talk a lot in the book about hysteria uh, and what hysteria was in the late 19th century in France and then like in the 1980s in the United States when multiple personality disorder became like a, a epidemic, you know. People were opening clinics for it but all over. Yeah, Sybil was the sort of 
Genesis. Well, Eve was the Genesis, and then. Um, so, not Eve, Eve. No. No, sorry. There was a famous, you know, the many faces of Eve. That book. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, they're like, he was good, and then he said. Um, so, you know, there was this, there's this, always this kind of desire, and that went rampant, and the reason that it stopped, do you know why there, we don't have, like, endless cases of multiple personality now? Insurance. Insurance stopped paying for it, and the cases just went to, yeah. And so, they took it out of the DSM. And, and you know, it's a fast, and they took it out of the DSM. Yeah. So these things like go in waves, and the question is, who is allowed to be in those situations? Because that too had to do with race. There was only, uh, multiple personality was really white, middle class, and upper class women. Um, and so, and just as hysteria was mainly poor uh, white women in France. So it's a wild thing to try to understand why these things spread like wildfire, but it also has to do with us as humans who, um, you know, are led by fears as much as we are by facts. Well, even just mental illness in general, that, you know, they're saying, you know, they didn't have this 100 years ago. Well, <laughs> they didn't have this 100 years ago. Well, you know, Diagnosis. just because it's being diagnosed now, sure. uh -huh. it's because we have health care now. People died. <laughs> What else? I think we have two more over here. Okay. And then we'll have to wrap up. Okay. You both I'll be have around talk your hand chat up more. for a very long time. She does too. Uh, Kevin, I, 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 want to, I understood you to say that you thought during the 60s there was kind of a lull in the hoax. And I would ask you to reconsider that based on my own experience of the 60s graduating from high school sure. in, in, in 1970 and into the sure. draft and uh, a very escalating and, and undeclared sure. war in, in Vietnam. And I think there was a hoax going on at a very right. leadership level. Absolutely. At the highest level of government. Uh, I agree. Starting with, uh, with Nixon, the president. I 100% agree with you. And Watergate was hoax, institutionalized sure. hoax. And, sure. and he used the media to convince a broad swath of the American people that, oh, you know, this, there's, we're, we're doing the right thing here. Just, sure. you know. Uh, I, but were there, do we think there were, you know, if you look through just books on hoaxes, there aren't as many of these kind of little weird hoaxes that I'm talking about. And I'm wondering about, I mean, maybe it's because it's taking up all the oxygen, the one big hoax. I, I think he had center stage. <laughs> I see that's what you think. Uh, um, yeah. But I would also have us think about, like, we have huge hoaxes now, huge, uh, you know, some people would say governmental oh, questions. But we also have this level of little fakery that I think is, is symptomatic of something else. Um, so, you know, I, I'd love to chat with you more and, and hear what you thought about trying to sort these things out in terms of era. I mean, it's a little like the 40s. It's, you say, oh, I would say there weren't a lot of hoaxes. But then, the, of course, there were, you know, Operation uh, Mincemeat, where they threw up a, a fake body on the shore uh, to convince the Germans that D-Day was happening a different place in a different time. You know, these are all th parts of fakery, but they're really slightly different. And I, I try to explore them in the book and come to terms with that cyclical quality. One more. Thanks. Hello, thank you so much for being here. 
Um, I'm a statistician and a storyteller. You're giving me a lot to think about. Okay. Um, you talked a lot about the relationship between hoaxes and doubt and fear of getting duped. I wonder if you could talk about the relationship between hoax and hope. Fear of missing out. I'm thinking about Firefest. I'm thinking about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really a sequel. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I thought uh, it's called Bad Blood, the book about Theranos, and I didn't see the documentary last night. Um, dying to see it. But, you know, I'm fascinated by this idea that Theranos was really, I mean, talk about vampiric, you know. It was really trying to get at not just our fears, but as you said, our hopes. Um, but there is a level of, excuse me, in her story of fear. Like the reason she wanted to make the vial so small is because she said she was scared of needles. Um, and there was this weird kind of play, interplay, and I don't know, is it fear or hope, the, the, the missing out, you know? And I think the saddest part of, I don't know if you read the book, of the book is that um, one of the sort of whistleblowers was the grandson, or is he the nephew? Grandson. Yeah of uh, one of the figures who's on the board of Theranos and it destroys their relationship. Mm. Um, it was a little like um, uh, the person we we're talking about who I knew was a hoaxer. Mm. He destroyed uh, the relationship between the guy who's on Mad Money um, and uh, uh, Peretz, Marty Peretz, they were best friends and he destroyed their relationship. Marty Peretz ran the New Republic where Stephen Glass was so there was a lot of hoaxing happening around there. But I don't know, it's a really good thing to think about. Is, is that the new hoax? I just see it so much though that people do the accusation of the hoax first. Um, but it does, it is a kind of American story, these stories that are tied more to money, where if you just convince someone that you have this thing that works, you know, a Fiji mermaid, a cure for this, people are gonna buy it, you know? And, and it's amazing how that company went from I think it was nine billion uh, to nothing, literally nothing, in a year. Thanks for your great question. I'll catch up after I hope. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much. Let's give it up for Tina and Kevin. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much.